0: What a blessing that we can be together. I appreciate so much the songs that have been led, the prayers that have been led, the reading of God's word, thinking about things such as, this will be a great day for the Lord to return. What a blessing when we can think that way. When we're considering the Lord above all else and longing to be with Him, it is a blessing. <laughs> it's a blessing that we can be together to encourage each other, remind each other, to be thinking about the Lord and Him above all else because He is the only thing that makes sense, the only thing that matters is our only need. So thank you for being here to encourage me this morning. It's really good to see Miss Barbara with us today. What a blessing that is as well. We've got so many that are out traveling, and yet we've got quite a few here, and we're encouraged to see you with us. There's several online. We're grateful for that. Some will be listening to this lesson later. We're thankful that you're tuning in and listening. We pray that we'll say something today that will encourage you to draw nearer to the Lord and to serve Him. if we can help you with that, that's what we want to do more than anything else. I don't know if you noticed as Ben was reading, but we're in Judges chapter 2. That's early in Israel's history as they've come into this promised land. And that generation that had come in with Joshua was gathered to their fathers, and another generation arose, and it says they did not know the Lord, nor the great things which He had done for Israel. Now can you imagine being of that generation that came through the Red Sea, And we know they complained three days later about not having water, but they remembered the Red Sea. And you think about their children. You think they weren't telling their children, look, I mean, the water was standing up on both sides of us. Their children knew about the Red Sea. And all through Israel's history, God will talk about how he brought them out of Egypt with a strong arm. And he's talking about that Red Sea and all the plagues that were done in Egypt before. And yet here's this generation that comes up In the second chapter of Judges already, the children of Israel, these are the people who have a covenant with God, and it says they did not know the Lord nor the things He had done for Israel. It's just amazing to me how quickly Israel is turning away from God. Not only do they not know Him, they're turning to the Baals and the Ashtoreths here. They're serving these other gods and forsaking the God who brought them out of Egypt. That's what happens when you don't know God. You began to set something up, something else up in your heart as God. When they refused to know God in Romans chapter 1, they began to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We're going to worship something. We're going to worship someone, and that someone and something may be ourselves, may be our pleasures, may be our lives. We're going to worship something. And that's what Israel did. They had lots of examples of worship all around them. We've got lots of examples of worship all around us. <laughs> there are idols. American Idol, there are stars, there are these people that are higher and more important than us, we're told, and they're being worshipped. And we're being tempted to worship right along. But this is amazing to me that in Judges 2, within a hundred years of the people being made free from bondage, there's two things that are mentioned as being true. They do not know the Lord. Within a hundred years of coming through that Red Sea, there's a generation that does not know the Lord the Lord, and they do not know the work, the great things that He's done for Israel within a hundred years. But it's worse than that, really. And We've got the Exodus more or less 1,445 B.C., 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. That generation knows the Lord. The adults that were rebellious are swallowed up. Those kids know the Lord. They watch what happens when you rebel against God. They raised their children to know the Lord in the presence of Joshua as they're going in and taking the land. But that conquest was in 1405, 40 years after coming out of Egypt. And Joshua's death in this generation we're talking about is in 1345. That's only 60 years after the conquest. It's 100 years since coming out of Egypt. It's only 60 years since the conquest. Many of these people might still be alive. They were a little bitty when they went into the Promised Land. And yet they don't know the Lord or the work which He had done for Israel, which means something about that generation before. Even as they may have been faithfully serving, they weren't faithfully transmitting the message to that next generation. How do these kids rise up among people who came through the Red Sea and they don't know the Lord nor what He did for Israel? How is that possible? It's just amazing to me. But it gets worse if you'll turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 35, this is a blight on Israel's history, and I dare say it's a blight on our own lives. I don't think the pattern we're going to see with Israel's forgetfulness is just something unique to Israel. I suggest we all struggle with this. In 2 Chronicles chapter 35, we're told of this king, Josiah. He's near the end of the time of Judah. Israel's already been carried off into captivity. They turned so far from God that there was no return. They did not repent. They sought after other gods, and God sent them into captivity and scattered them among the nations, led off by the Assyrians. And he warned Judah the same thing's going to happen to you because you're watching your sister Israel and you're not turning from your sins. Turn away from these gods while there's time. And so Josiah, the son of a, or the grandson of a pretty bad king, one of the kings that we're told is the reason Israel was, that Judah was taken off into captivity, but he decides he's going to to return to the Lord with his heart. He's going to make these reforms. And during his days, they find a book of the law as they're going through some of the temple courts. They find this book of the law, and they open it up and read it. And Josiah realizes they haven't been keeping the Passover. (laughs) And so they begin to keep the Passover as they read in the book of the law. There had been no Passover, 2 Chronicles 35, verses 18 and 19. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet, since the days of Samuel, the prophet, and none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept, with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. You know what that means? It means that David, Solomon, the great kings, didn't keep the Passover like Josiah did. They didn't have everybody come. They may have kept it in, among the court, they didn't have everybody do it. There'd been no one since the days of Samuel the prophet who had kept the Passover like this. Now, the Passover is talked about at least three different times in the books of the law, <laughs> so a couple of times in the book of Exodus. It's mentioned in Leviticus and Numbers. So that means that at least parts of these books have been forgotten over all these years. Because they found it and Josiah realizes, wait a second, we haven't been doing this major feast. You know when that is? It's around the year 622 B.C. That's more than 400 years since Samuel was prophet. 400 years without keeping the Passover feast in Israel. The Passover feast, which of course commemorates coming through the Red Sea. (laughs) They don't know the Lord nor the great works He's done for them. Bringing them out of captivity. How is that possible? 400 years, God's covenant people aren't keeping the major, one of the major feasts. But it gets worse. I want you to travel down in time with me now. Israel has gone off to Assyrian captivity, Judah's gone into Babylon. They didn't repent. After the days of Josiah, other kings rose up that did not do the Lord's will. And Judah's carried off to Babylon. And they're there for 70 years purifying a remnant of people that will do the Lord's will. And brave Nehemiah decides he's going to go back and he's going to help restore this city. When he comes back, he begins to institute some reforms. In Nehemiah chapter 8 now. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 17. The whole assembly of those that returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. This is the Feast of Tabernacles, called booths here. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. This is another one of the major feasts in Israel, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's tied also to the coming out. They stopped first at a place called Succoth. That word means booths or tabernacles, and that's where this feast gets its name. They camped in tents as they came through the Wilderness on their way to the promised land, and they were to remember that every year in this feast. And they have not kept it since the days of Joshua the son of Nun. You want to get a feeling of how long that has been? When Nehemiah comes back, we're talking 444 BC, and they have the first tabernacle feast since the days of Joshua nearly a thousand years. A thousand years. <laughs> That's, hard. That's a hard amount of time for us to fathom. We were talking in our uh, overview class this morning. The United States has officially been a country 245 years today. This was five times longer than the United States has been standing as a country. They have not kept one of the major feasts in Israel. And we're talking about the Israelites. These aren't pagans. How is that possible? It should be frightening when we see snippets like this in the book and recognize These are God's people, and there are major things that God has given them to remind them of Him, to remind them of His grace and His power and His mercy and His presence, and they've completely forgotten about it. That should be frightening to us. Sometimes I wonder when I read texts like this, what is it that I don't know? What is it that we as God's people have forgotten about? What is it that we haven't discovered here? What do we study all the time but don't study ever? (laughs) What do we skim around What is it that we don't know that we ought to know? And how is it possible that they went for a thousand years without keeping this Feast of Tabernacles? I want to suggest to you this kind of language is not absent from the New Testament either. (laughs) Already, as Peter's writing 2 Peter around 66 or 67 in the year of our Lord, this is A.D., 2 Peter chapter 3, look at verses 3 and 4. Now I want you to understand, actually I want to start in verse 1 here because I like the way Peter says this. I want you to understand that there are people now who've been Christians about 30 years or a little more and they're starting to wonder, has, has God forgotten about us? <laughs> and he says, yeah, that's, people are going to come and try to trick you into thinking that way. Beloved, I now write you, 2 Peter 3 verse 1, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. You see what's going on here? It's not so different from what we saw there in Israel. They've gone about... Their daily grind of living for the Lord, and they start to think, I think God's forgot about us. <laughs> like, He told us all these great things were going to happen, and well, we don't see Him. Where, where is Jesus in the second coming? Is He coming for the faithful? There had been a rumor going around, at least, some were teaching this, according to some of Paul's teaching, that the resurrection was already past, and that some people had missed it. And in 1 Corinthians, He reminds them, though, no, <laughs> you're not going to miss the resurrection, we're going to be transformed. It'll be obvious when the resurrection comes. Those who have already died, he tells the Thessalonians, they haven't missed out on the resurrection. They're going to be with the Lord before we are. We'll meet them all together in the air. Don't be concerned about things people are saying because so much time has gone by, 30 years. Israel had been a thousand years wondering where's God because they weren't remembering Him. Think about this also that Jesus says in Luke chapter 17 speaking about the day of judgment as it comes. (laughs) And I love the language here. Luke 17, he reminds them that they need to be paying attention always. Starting at verse 26, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. but on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You notice what Jesus is saying there. You notice what happened to the Israelites? You know what happens so often to some of us and what was happening to those who were being tempted in the book of Peter? Jesus told this parable of the sower. And he said, there's this one type of soil that receives the seed and begins to grow, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things entering in, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Jesus is talking about the same thing here. He's talking about in all these other passages, and I believe what happened to the Israelites in their long history. Simply that life gets in the way. (laughs) I want to serve God. I want to know Him. I want to be useful in His service. But life gets in the way sometimes. I've got to live. I remember when I was first converted, began to try to teach my family about the Bible, my, uh, my, my mother and father and my sisters. And they would say, well, it's crazy. Nobody can live by the Bible these days. Not just from different times. Our lives are so much more sophisticated. You can't do that. And you'll go crazy if you try. There's so many crazy people out there because they're just trying to follow the Bible. And they tried to discourage me from doing it. And the more I read, the more I realized, yeah, you can do this. The world is crazy, they're right. But it's not from trying to follow the Bible. It's because we've rejected God. Life gets in the way if we're not careful. Our lives should be lived for the Lord. I want you to think about their lives. Let's think about them, this shepherd community. Now coming out of the desert and coming into the promised land, they had a lot to worry about. I dare say scaring up food was more difficult for them. They couldn't just drive to Walmart. How convenient is that? They had to plan it. They had to plan ahead for months and they had to till the earth and work it. Now there was some markets where they could get some things and trade with others, but they had to produce something to be able to have the produce of someone else. And so I can imagine them saying, well, look, as in the parable of the wedding feast, I've just bought these, this yoke of oxen. I need to go try them out. I got to make sure that I'm going to have the service I need to plant and till and get the food out. I've got to go to work. They <laughs> Had to study the Torah. <laughs> they didn't all have a copy of it. They had to find a way to get to the synagogue. They had to reserve time. They had to be with someone perhaps who could help them. We got a Bible at home. <laughs> well, they had to make some special time for this. They still had to find time to be with their families. And then they didn't just go buy a, an inventory home. They had to build a home. <laughs> There's a lot that got in their way. And for many of them, it was enough to make that become the focus. And they forgot who the Lord was and the things he did to bring them to where they were. <clears throat> our lives seem a bit more complicated. We've got so many things to make life simple that we've complicated things. We've got our jobs. We've still got to go produce money now so that we can buy produce. But we've still got to produce some kind of a service that's useful that we get paid for in return. We've got to put in some labor for that. Still got to study our Bibles. That got hidden there behind the PlayStation. Uh, still got to study our Bibles. I wonder if, I didn't do that on purpose, but I wonder if there's something prophetic in that. Uh, still got to take time to study the Word. We've got the Bible in our homes, but you know how often do we really dig it out and, and study into it? We've got so many other things going on. We've got to build our home. have <laughs> got to find some time for our families. have got to make the car payment so I might have to work overtime. I've got to have my cell phone and then... I've got to spend all my time on it because it's so important. There's not real relationships, sort of, there may be, but they're not the same thing. I've got to have my computer time. Life gets in the way, and it gets in the way very quickly if we're not careful. Jesus taught the cure for that. And God has taught the cure for that since early on. He's talking to them about worry about not being concerned about providing food and clothing for themselves. Those are things that are necessary to be provided. Paul says, if a man won't work, then don't let him eat either. That's a necessary thing. <laughs> do you notice there that the first thing that Jesus mentioned back in that parable of the sower was the cares of this world. He didn't say those are sinful cares. There are cares of this world. I've got to feed my children. i got to make sure that my wife doesn't go hungry. I've got to work. <laughs> There's things I need to do. Those are cares of this world. Some of these things are sinful. The deceitfulness of riches. I got to be rich so I can feed my family. No, I don't. (laughs) My family can eat just fine if I'm not rich. And I dare say even the poorest among us are richer than many, many people in the world. And certainly richer than any of these Israelites, even the richest one that for a thousand years had turned away from God. The poorest among us is richer than perhaps the richest of them. The, the, The common man I'm talking about. So Jesus gives the cure here. He says he's not seeking the things. Seeking first the kingdom of God, Matthew six thirty three, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you in the context. He says your father knows that you need these things. He's going to make sure you're taken care of. He takes care of the birds, doesn't he? You're worth more than the birds. He takes care of the grass by giving the grass flowers to wear. Even Solomon wasn't arrayed, arrayed with flowers. How beautiful are those? but that's going to be burnt up tomorrow. It's something that's not that important, and yet God takes care of them. God will take care of you. You take care of remembering God, of putting God first in your life. But life gets in the way. I don't have time for God. Church is something I do on Sundays and Tuesdays, but all the rest of my time is devoted to other stuff. Well, if you're only seeking His kingdom and His righteousness first on Sundays and Tuesdays, you're not seeking His kingdom and His righteousness first. You need to understand that. We're not just playing church on Sundays and Tuesdays. We are seeking the Lord, and this is an extension of that. This is something God has provided to encourage us. When I say things from here, even if I say harsh things, I say them in a way that I hope will encourage you and will spur you on. (laughs) Jesus told Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads hurt, but they're meant to push you forward, not for you to fall back on them. These things are difficult to think about. Romans 15.4. I'm so encouraged when I look at some of these texts that talk about sort of the purpose of God's revealing all things that he's revealed. This text is interesting. Whatever things were written before, Romans 15.4, were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Why do I bring that up? Why did I bring up the Israelites forgetting about God for 60 years 400 years, 1,000 years. What are we supposed to learn from that? That it's easy for us to forget about God, even though we might be His covenant people, even though we've come and said, I will serve the Lord, all that the Lord says we will do. That's what they said word for word, and yet it didn't take them long. They forgot who God was and what He had done. Why is that in the Bible? It's that through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures we might have hope. We might see these things that they did wrong and say, I don't want to do that. We might learn from the things they did right and say, "Yes, let's be doing that." And in the end, Mark 6:33, God's going to provide if we're seeking Him first. How does He do that? Well, first off, through the Scriptures, He provides for our spiritual health and our spiritual growth. He's provided a family for us that have all come in the same way we have through the Scriptures. How did Israel become a nation through God's planning? through His guiding, through His Word, through the Scriptures. There is so much more at stake than we think of. appreciate so much Mike saying, we wouldn't be here, none of us. We wouldn't know each other. We've got nothing in common, but we've got the most important thing in common. That's why we're all here. (laughs) Because of the Scriptures. Because of God's Word and His uniting us in Himself. And so, so often, this, this old epithet about, did you plan to fail? No, you failed to plan. So often that's what happens with the people of God. God has given us everything we need to be successful. It's right here in our hands. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9 through 9, says it so beautifully. I just love, when you think about what Peter's saying here, I love the depth of what we actually have in the scriptures that we forget we have in our hands. He says, His divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life. I believe he's talking about this life here and godliness, the preparation for that life there. He's given us all things that pertain to the two realms in which we're to live, physical and spiritual. And then he says, for this very reason, give diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. And in the end, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness. So short-sighted you could go a thousand years and miss out on one of the major festivals that the Lord has set up for you. That's pretty short-sighted. How did nobody see that? The kings are supposed to have their own copy of the law. They're supposed to write their own copy of the law. And nobody had seen that until the days of Josiah and the others until the days of Nehemiah. Come on. Do we plan to fail? Or do we simply fail to plan? God has given us all we need. Let's not be short-sighted. I want to share with you something from the comfort and patience of the Scriptures that give us hope. I'm going to think about the situation back in Genesis 18, the situation of Abraham. And what God says here to me is so comforting because I believe there is practical application for us as well. God is about to go down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, He makes a detour first, and He goes and He talks to Abraham about His plan. Now, Abraham's cousin, brother, Lot, is there. His nephew, I think, in the end, is there. And so he goes and talks to Abraham about this. But look what he says, why he goes to talk to him. We'll start in verse 16 of, of Genesis 18. The men, the angels, rose from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Think about this. God says, why would I hide what I'm planning to do from Abraham? I know Abraham. And I've known him in order that he may do what's right, and that he may teach his children to do what's right. This knowing, this relationship of God and Abraham began when God Himself called Abraham. And He brought him into a covenant. Back in Genesis 12, He told him to leave from the land of his fathers, leave from among the idolaters and come, and He would provide him a place. He would bless all the nations of the earth through him. In Genesis 15, as Abraham began to struggle with that promise, the Lord came to him and said, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. That's in Genesis 15.1, but look at verse 13. He said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age." But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When you think about those generations of Israelites who did not know the Lord nor what He had done, they were missing out on this information. (laughs) Something that God had told Abraham before it ever happened, that they could look back and say, it happened just like God said. They could trust in the Word of God, but they missed out because they didn't know God or His works. It hadn't been passed on. On that same day, verse 18 of Genesis 15 says... The Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I've given this land. And he explains the the depth and breadth of the land that he's giving to them. God called Abraham to a covenant. Hebrews Hebrews 10 and 11 tell us, This covenant is firm because he who promised is faithful. God was going to uphold this covenant no matter what because he had promised this to his descendants. But that didn't keep Abraham from being responsible to his side. In Genesis 17, if you'll open with me there, sorry if you flipped over to Hebrews. Genesis 17, Abraham has a responsibility in this covenant. Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, this is 25 years later. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. At this point, Abraham's... Freaking out, he doesn't have any children yet. And God says, I'm going to give you children as numberless as the sand on the seashore. 25 years later, God comes to him and says, you need to walk blameless before me. You have a personal responsibility. He's already told him, or will tell him in chapter 18, that he needs to teach it to his children as well. If not, there will be another generation, but they won't be faithful. It comes down to God knowing Abraham and through the word calling him to teach. Deuteronomy 29.29. Seems like a long jump, but I want to show you how how I get there. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed, that is through his word, belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. It's not a theoretical kind of teaching. This is a practical teaching. Do what I'm telling you. But before we actually end up in Deuteronomy 29, 29, I want to start at the beginning of Deuteronomy in chapter 6. Because these two statements sort of bookend the book of Deuteronomy. It's the same instruction that had been given to Abraham. I'm going to teach him these things so that he can teach his children after him. And this is now a national statement in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What a blessing. Look what he says after that. Verse 10. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Sixty years later, they'd forgotten the Lord. They didn't know him or the things he'd done. But you see, what God gave them was enough supplies to make sure they didn't forget. Not only the great things he'd done, he gave them his word over and over saying, just do this, just do this, just read this, just remember this. That's where Peter started. I want to stir up your minds by way of reminder. I want you to be mindful of these things. Do not forget what the Lord has said and his mighty prophets. Teach this to your children and become a national instruction. So, as we look at all of this, and I said, we should be a little bit frightened as we think of ourselves as God's people, but we see what God's people were capable of. How do we keep from heading down a dead end with our spiritual relationship with the Lord? Well, I think we've seen the answer already. There are several things we've noticed in these texts, I just want to bring them to your attention. How do we avoid becoming a generation who doesn't know the Lord, who doesn't know what He's done? How do we avoid leaving a lost generation behind us? The answer is really simple. We need to start by being diligent in our own faithfulness. Diligence in our own spiritual growth. Not just kind of hoping we'll pick something up on a Sunday or Tuesday while we're sitting in, but studying the Word and seeking to grow and understand it. 1 Timothy 4, verse 16 Paul told Timothy as he was left in Ephesus to teach, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. You may know, be more familiar with 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You've already read 2 Peter chapter 1, giving all diligence, add to virtue knowledge, add to knowledge faith, add and by, Go in front. Keep, keep adding. <laughs> Build on your faith. Because otherwise you're going to become short-sighted. Life will get in the way. And the blinders will come up. So first, we've got to be diligent in our own faithfulness. We also need to be teaching our children to be faithful. That's a simple statement that's given in Ephesians 6. I know not all of us are going to have children. We'll have opportunity to teach other children as well. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. There's two ideas there. The training is the what. You give them the what. You show them what it is. The admonition, that's the how and the why. That's the putting the rubber to the road. That's, that's making the things work that you've doctrinated them toward, you've trained them toward. Now you're showing them how to use it practically. Teach them the what and the how and the why. The best way to do that is in your own faithful walk. Letting them imitate you, as beloved children will do. We see those instructions handed down time and again. Look at how they're inherent in the work of a congregation, and the Christians in this congregation. Titus chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. The older women likewise be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, Good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. That idea of loving the children, of passing on what they've learned to the children. Over and over again, those things are simply inherent. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 10, the, the widow there is well reported for good work. She's brought up children. She's trained children in the Lord. That's the idea. It's part of the, uh, the qualifications to be an elder. So you have faithful children? Why? because you're someone who's concerned about passing that information on to the next generation and is faithfully modeling how to do that. Obviously, there's great benefit in what we're doing here. Israel was supposed to come together every seven years for a reading of the entire law. As I said, they didn't have a copy in their homes. They were supposed to meet in the public square every seven years for a public reading of the law. At other times on Sabbath, they were to gather together and read what portions of the law they had. They were supposed to be teaching one another to be faithful. It's exactly what we're called to do. One of my favorite texts about this is in Hebrews chapter 3. It's a quotation from Psalms in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through uh, 14 or so. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me and saw my works 40 years. I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Then he says, beware brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That doesn't sound like something we just do on Sundays. Exhort one another daily. As you have opportunity, call your brethren and remind them who we are, what we're doing here, because they're going to remind you too. What a blessing when we're involved in each other's lives while it's called today, not while it's called Sunday. We need this. We need to teach and encourage one another to be faithful. It's one of the reasons we come together on Sunday, Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I would argue that what he's talking about here is not just Sunday. Certainly we can make an application for that, but the idea is of a continual assembling of yourselves together. As you have opportunity, spend time with one another. Encourage one another to be faithful. We sing to each other for that reason. Colossians chapter 3, we speak in hymns and psalms and uh, spiritual songs to one another. Second Timothy chapter 2, Paul said, you take the things you've learned from me and you teach it to others that will be faithful as well. We must teach one another to be faithful. And obviously, obviously, after we've built one another up to this purpose, we need to be teaching the lost. We're not here just to maintain this church, just to make sure we all stay faithful. We want to be reaching out to those who are lost. We were all lost. And someone reached out to us. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. We must reach out and teach the lost. In Luke chapter 24, as Jesus is sending out the apostles, what he tells them to preach is that there needs to be repentance. Luke chapter 24, verse 46 and 47, It is written, and it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem." Those of you who've heard me teach on these two verses before know that I talk about three things that are equally imperative here. It was the death of Christ that was necessary. It was also necessary that he rose again from the dead. But the third thing that's equally necessary in terms of getting the gospel out is someone telling others about those things happening. If he died and resurrected and no one knew about it, it might as well not have happened. But the fact that he died and that he resurrected, that's worthy of talking about and we need to be telling people. That's the gospel. And that'll bring people to repentance when they recognize that the judge can overcome death and he can bring us with him. And so we see in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 11, as the persecution came down hard, they were scattered everywhere, but they didn't stop talking. They went everywhere preaching the word, trying to get that word out. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16. (laughs) If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, For necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, Paul says. I just need to talk. And just because I'm doing it doesn't make me great. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. We need to be talking about the gospel. And the reason for that is, and I just this morning saw saw a great quote that talked about sometimes we have this idea that if we'll just live the gospel, we may be the only Bible some pagan will ever read. That's true. There's some truth in that. But the gospel is a word message that's meant to be taught because there are events that must be expressed we can't live those events I mean our baptism does in some sense but very few people witness that the change in us needs to be explained and that's explained by teaching the word of Christ faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ someone can't have faith for salvation because they see that I'm a good person now they can ask me why and I can teach them so they can have faith towards salvation but just because they see me doing good works, that's that's not enough. We must be teaching the gospel. And so if we don't want to be guilty of becoming a generation who's lost or of leaving a generation behind us that's lost, we need to be diligent in our own faith. We need to be building our faith by study. We need to be teaching our children, not just hoping that they'll pick it up along the way. We need to be teaching one another, not just hoping that some of us will pick it up along the way. We need to be prepared and purposeful in this. And we need to be reaching out to the lost. I think of this great moment in Israel's history. Another time when they could have been lost to history. <laughs> we're talking about this Jewish rabbi that died, came back to life. What if no one had heard about that? He'd be lost to history. If he hadn't come back to life, it wouldn't have mattered. He'd be lost to history like so many other Jewish rabbis. The whole Jewish nation could have been lost to history. In the time of Esther, they were about to be wiped out. <laughs> but Mordecai went to her and encouraged her to stand up to the king and say, look, this is my people. (laughs) Let us defend ourselves against these evildoers. And they did. And she knew it could cost her life to go before the king, and Mordecai told her, but look, if salvation doesn't come from you doing this, God will save his people some other way. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. (laughs) Is this going to be a lost generation? I pray not. I'm encouraged when I look around, and I see children here that are learning I see people that are building each other up, but it could become a lost generation. What I'd like for us to consider is, who knows whether I, who knows whether you, have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The next generation of the faithful depends on you. And I mean that to every one of you. It depends on me, and it depends on all of you. The next generation of the faithful only comes when we're faithful and we're transmitting the word of faith to others. As you're listening today, maybe you are among that generation that doesn't know the Lord or the great things He's done. We would love to talk to you about Him and about the things He's done. It's amazing to me that anybody cannot know about a man coming back to life, a man who came and lived a sinless life. And he said, I'm the Son of God, and I'm going to go to the grave, but I'll come back on the third day. (laughs) And all those who believe in me will not perish but have everlasting life. It's amazing to think about that. How can someone not know that? God has revealed himself for salvation by means of the gospel, by means of this message. For everyone who believes can be saved from their sins. Do you believe? If you're a part of the generation that already believes, make sure others also believe. Make sure you're speaking these things. Make sure you're living these things. Make sure you're diligent and purposeful in doing so. And if you're not already a part of that generation, seek us out. Come talk to us. Let us show you the things that God wants to do with your life. He wants to bring you from your sins. We want to help you do that. Whatever your need may be, come seek us out. We'd love to talk with you. We're going to stand and sing a song designed to encourage your obedience.